Let's open up our Bibles and uh, get into all that God has for us. We're going to open to the book of Luke in chapter 18. What I have to share with you today is, is not complicated, but it is profound to our faith. It's profound, profound to our walking uh, with Jesus. It's profound to the life that you're meant to live. It's foundational because um, we all, those of you today that are believers, you know what it's like when you first came to Jesus. You came to him with nothing, and he gave you his everything. You came to him knowing you had nothing to offer him but you. And it was such a wonderful place to be in to say, God, I know I need you, and here I am. As we grow and as we mature and as we develop skills and and, and begin to walk in, in, the, in the power of God, there are times when we um, lose that first attitude that we had. It's good, like I said earlier, it's good to grow, but we can't forget that the same faith that you had when you got born again is the same faith that you need to do everything God's called you to do. The same grace that was available to you to be saved is the same grace that you need to walk in the power of God. And if we can have that attitude from the get-go, that when I came to Jesus, I needed him and him alone. When I came to Jesus, I couldn't get myself saved. I had to trust him. Then it comes to the same thing. When I get up today to preach, I'm not getting up today to preach saying, well, it's a good thing I learned some preaching skills. It's a good thing I've practiced my public speaking. Because ultimately, when I get up, the Bible says, let him who speaks Speak as if God is speaking. And he's not saying, you know, put your best imitation of a person who who God is speaking through. He's not saying act like it. He's saying let God speak through you. Then it says let him who serves serve in the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Christ in all things. And so here's the point. No matter what we're doing, you're supposed to let him do it through you. And that's, that's easy to say. But as we get more competent, as we, as we begin to learn how to, how to handle ourselves, sometimes we substitute our skill for the grace of God that got us there in the first place. And we have to learn that without him, we can do nothing, but through him, all things are possible. That's the attitude we've got to have. So in the book of Luke, I want to point you to a, a, a parable that most of you are familiar with. And Jesus says in Luke 18 and verse 9, says, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this before, but in, in our modern understanding, if you're just reading this for the first time, you're saying, well, what in the world's wrong with tax collectors? Should we be hostile to people that work for Revenue Canada? Should we... No, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to understand that in Jesus' time, these were the collaborators. These were the ones that were seen as betraying their own people for, for working with the Romans. This is like, how would you feel in Vichy, France, in World War II, with the people that are cooperating with the Nazis? How do you feel about the government officials that are working for the Nazis? It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's worse. You somehow 
have worse feelings about the Frenchman, I'm saying if you're from France, you'd, you'd feel worse about the Frenchman cooperating with the Nazis than the Nazis themselves because, well, the Germans can't help being Germans, but we can help it. We're French. Same thing when our Canadian troops stepped into Holland and, and liberated some cities and towns in Holland. There were many Dutch that, that had cooperated with the, the Germans, and, and they were treated very badly once the cities were liberated because they were collaborators. You can imagine being Jewish people, and the Romans have invaded your homeland. They've, they've taken over the government. They have installed their own leaders over you, and you've got some of your own countrymen working for them. Not only that, they're not just collecting taxes for the Romans, but they're taking a little bit extra for themselves. So they're getting rich off your poverty. They're getting rich off of whatever you've got, and, they're, and they have the authority to be mean about it if you don't hand it over. So these people were hated. And one thing about this, you, you'll notice that often Jesus uses the tax collectors. Often the tax collectors come up in people's criticism of Jesus during his lifetime. And nowhere does Jesus say, the tax collectors are doing a good thing. Nowhere does he say they're not sinners. He never defends their actions. He never, the only, the closest thing you can find is when he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar, Caesar's, give to God what's God's. And you might think that's defending the tax collectors, but that's actually an indictment on them as well because he's saying, don't give, don't take from the people any more than's due to Caesar. They were taking extra to pad their bank accounts. So nowhere does God say, tax collectors aren't that bad. No, he acknowledges they're sinners. And this parable, like so many others, he uses the extremes to prove a point. Sometimes I've used, I've tried to, to, to illustrate a point, and, and I've used the extremes, and somebody says, well, you're using extremes. Well, that's what good storytellers do. You use extremes to prove a point. I know it's hyperbole, but that's what you do. So Jesus uses the extreme. The, the one guy that everybody can agree is a bad guy was the tax collector. So he says there's a tax collector and there's a Pharisee, and they both go into the temple to pray. Verse 11, he says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, do you notice who he's praying to? To himself. Now, he's praying to God as well. What Jesus isn't saying that he's setting himself up as God. He's saying he's praying this to himself. He's not being loud about it, but God hears it. And in many ways, this is more for the Pharisee to feel good about himself than for God to do anything. His prayer is not really an appeal to God. It's just a statement of, look how good I'm doing. He says, he prays to himself, God, I thank you. That's a good start. Thanksgiving, hey? Good start. It goes downhill from here. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Can we just say from the very get-go, if you ever pray a prayer like this, it's already lost. At that point, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. There's a reason we didn't sing any songs today that said, Lord, we thank you that we are not like those people. We, there's, there was no songs that were talking about how bad everybody else was. Because that's not an attitude that God honors. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm not like the swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's an awkward moment, isn't it? He's, he's saying, God, I'm not like the swindlers. I'm not like the unjust, the adulterers, or that guy over there. And I don't know if the tax collector hears him or not. And sometimes, you might say, I've never prayed a prayer like this, but sometimes the look people give is, might as well be a prayer like this. Thank God I'm not like them. 
Thank God I am not like them. You know, in this, you know, we, we Canadians, uh, the very few Americans might know, and I, I'm a dual citizen, my wife comes from the States, and very few Americans pay much attention to our politics, but we pay a whole lot of attention to theirs. Because as Prime Minister Trudeau I, you know, Pierre said, we're like the mouse who's lying next to the elephant. The elephant doesn't really know what the mouse is doing, but the mouse is aware of every little twitch the elephant makes. <laughs> so we're aware that whoever is elected in the States is going to affect us. Well, I have, I have had many conversations about this, and everybody kind of wants to know what your point is, what your worldview is. And it's funny, no matter what side people are on, it is really fun for people to pick the extreme on either side and, and use them as like, thank God we're not like them. I just had a conversation the other day where somebody was saying, can you believe this person? Thank God. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and it makes us feel good, doesn't it? Because, oh, thank God, we might, be, we might not be perfect, but thank God we're not like them. I've been in meetings where there were a group of pastors gathered and, and a speaker got up and began to talk about another type of, of minister, another type of church, and, 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 and they said, you know, oh, they're doing this and they're doing that, and he was getting amens all over the place. Why? Because everybody in the crowd says, thank God we're not like them. You'll get amens. You'll get amens because everybody finally feels vindicated, like, ah, oh, we're doing a good job. This is not what God is looking for. He's not looking for that. And this is the prayer that the Pharisee is praying, thank you, God, which sounds like he's about to thank God, but in the end, he's not really thanking God, is he? He's thanking himself. Thank God I'm not like them, because we know, because here's what he says after. He says, <laughs> he doesn't even stop there. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I don't know what he wants. Does he want a cookie from God? Does he want, does he want a promotion? What does he want? What a waste of your prayer time. But he just stands up there and says, he doesn't even stop at saying, thank God I'm not, not like them. He wants to prove it. I fast, I tithe, as if God is surprised by any of this knowledge. Nowhere in this prayer does he say, God, this is what you've done. Nowhere in the prayer does he acknowledge anything that God has done. His prayer is all about what I do. And God, aren't you thankful? God, I've thanked you, but in reality, you should be praying and thanking me because look what I do. And it says at the same time, there's another guy, the tax collector, standing some distance away, thankfully, because that would have been an awkward moment if he had heard everything the Pharisee was praying. Was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's so amazing about this is that this is one of the few instances in the Gospels where we hear someone being justified by faith. It is taught in depth in the New Testament, all throughout the, the letters and the epistles, but in, in the Gospels, 
Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time talking about this. It, he revealed it to the church. It came out like it should. He, he, he makes allusions to it. He makes hints toward it. But this is one instance where he just straight out says, this guy is justified. This is before the cross. He says, this guy is justified. Why is he justified? Justified means made righteous. In fact, that if you dig into the Greek there, it says declared righteous. This man was declared righteous. Why? Because he said, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, there's a couple words in the Greek for mercy. This one, some of your Bibles may have in the, in the column, Lord, make propitiation or be propitious for me. Is, has anyone used the word propitiation in the past year? Raise your hand. Praise God. Logan. Logan gets a cookie. Ushers, make sure that happens. Logan used the word propitiation because Logan's been to Bible school. The rest of us, we're not using that very often, are we? You're not, you're not often using propitiation. We, propitiation is a, is a term that we find in the scripture of Jesus making up the distance, Jesus paying the debt, Jesus taking our place. And so it's not just mercy as if God is, is somehow just overlooking something. It's God filling the gap. It's God paying the debt. What right does this tax collector have to ask such a thing? Where does, he get the, where does he get the guts to say, God, have mercy, forget what I've done? Who gives him the right to ask of God that? Who gives him a right to pray that prayer? It's interesting, we, we made allusion to this earlier on Wednesday night, that, that all throughout the Old Testament, there are people that pop up, that get a glimpse into the new covenant, even though they're in the old covenant. What gave John the Baptist the right to dunk people in water and say your sins are forgiven? Where in the, in the Old Testament law does it say you can do that? Who, who has that idea? Would any of you have come up with that? You say you're a sinner? You're a dirty, rotten sinner and you want, Jesus to, you want God to forgive you? Come here. What are we doing? We're not going swimming. No, come here. Let me hold you under the water for a while, then pull you out. Okay, your sins are forgiven. Who comes up with that stuff? Well, God came up with it. And it was a prelude to what Jesus would do permanently. This man walks away declared righteous. That's amazing. And it was because of his humility. Now, here's what I find interesting. That Jesus is not preaching this to the choir. He's not telling this to the sinners. He's not telling this to even his disciples. Who, who does it say he's talking to? It says right at the beginning of the parable, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So right there, he identifies the problem. If you're struggling with the meaning of this parable, I know it's simple, but we might still say, what's the point? Am I supposed to beat my breast? Is that how we pray? Should I cry more? Here's the issue that he's addressing. We know from the very first, from the scripture that starts it off. He's addressing the issue of those who trust in themselves. And because they trust in themselves, they view others with contempt. Now that's the guts of Jesus. Like I said, it's easy to preach to the people that agree with you. And say, thank God we're not like them. Jesus had the guts to talk directly to the people that had the problem. And address it head on. 
That's why, I mean, it's so fun to listen to Jesus preach. He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He addressed it right where they were. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't tell them all of these things so that they would feel bad about themselves and just go home feeling lousy. He told them so they would change. They would repent and be healed. That was his hope. Jesus wouldn't have wasted his breath in just condemning somebody. No, his point was, hear this. Because guys... Your path is a path that leads to death. He says this to the Pharisees. Unless you believe in me and receive me, you'll die in your sins. This is a God of mercy who says you have to realize the cliff is right there and you're about to go over it. So he's merciful enough to these people to tell them the truth. You you wonder why Jesus was hard on the Pharisees. I'll tell you why he was hard on the Pharisees because their hearts were hard. Because their hearts were hard, he had to address it so straight on, head on, so that by his mercy, when he addressed it head on, some would repent. He wasn't just doing this so that he could draw the line. He wasn't, I've heard some people say, well, Jesus had to make them mad so that they would crucify him. That's kind of silly, isn't it? No, he's not trying to tick them off. He's trying to save them. You might say, well, how does this apply to me? I've been saved for a long time. I had this conversation with God. How does this prayer look to a believer? Are you supposed to cry, beat your breast, and say, I'm a sinner, not look towards heaven? It doesn't seem to line up with the prayers of the New Testament in the sense that you're saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, because then you would be denying what God has done, right? It would show that, I mean, if... (laughs) <laughs> if, if I picked up a hitchhiker and they said, thank you for picking me up, I, I don't know how I would have gotten there without you. If every 10 kilometers they said, can I please have a ride? I would at some point say, you have a ride. We're driving. No, but please, can I get a ride? You have one. Let's talk about something else now. When we understand what Jesus did on the cross, we understand that our identity has to change. The Bible says he, be, he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So my identity changed from sinner to righteous. But that righteousness never switches from his work to my work. That righteousness is always a gift from him. And I have to understand, and this is humility that God is looking for. We quoted it earlier. The humility that God is looking for says, without you, I can do nothing. Through you, all things are possible. The humility that God is looking for understands that apart from him, there's nothing worth anything. But in him is every good thing. You have to understand. We can't just stop at saying, I'm nothing without you. We have to continue on with saying, I'm nothing without you. Thank God I'm not without you. But our prayer, and here's what we need to learn from this, our prayer has always got to hang everything onto him. That's what it means to pray by faith. Faith means reliance on him, leaning, complete trust, complete reliance on something. You have faith in that chair. How many of you have been sitting there nervously all service wondering if the chair is going to break? Anybody? How many, anybody like holding on to other chairs in case your chair breaks? No, you, I can tell the way you all are sitting. No, now you're going to be self-conscious about your sitting. But I, I can tell the way you're all sitting that you completely trust the chair. 
In fact, you trust it so much, you've moved on with, and, you, and you've, you've begun, you just sat, you've been able to concentrate on the word. Now maybe right now, now you're not thinking about the word anymore. Now you're thinking, is there something wrong with the chair? I, tr- I assure you, the chairs are good. Your faith in that chair is demonstrated by your action. You sat on it, you continue to sit on it, and you don't, every five seconds, doubt its ability to hold you. That's our relationship with God. We trust him. We rely on him, and we keep relying on him. Is there anybody who thinks today that it's your incredible leg muscles that have been holding you up this whole time? Chance. I asked Chance because he's our designated muscle guy right here. But look how he sits, so relaxed. No, no, nobody's depending on your legs to hold you. See, if you were, this would be really uncomfortable most of the service. We've depended on these chairs. This is the same way we've got to depend on God. Here's the thing. Here's the problem that Jesus is addressing. Number one, they're trusting in themselves. Number two, because they're trusting in themselves and they view themselves as good in their own self, in their own righteousness, they now view others with contempt. Do you remember the woman that, that, that came to Jesus, broke a, an expensive bottle of perfume, wiped his feet with her hair and her tears, and everybody criticized her. Some criticized her because she was a sinful woman in her past. Some criticized her because she wasted good money on that perfume. But Jesus said she did the right thing. And then he said, she's been forgiven much so she loves much. Because she's been forgiven and shown mercy, she has a great capacity for love. She's reacting to the mercy of God. Now here's the thing, and we've talked about this before. Every single one of us, no matter how old you are in this faith, no matter how mature you are in Christ, no matter how long you've been coming to church, whether it's this one or another one, no longer how many, no matter how many years it's been since you first gave your life to Jesus, we still are living in reaction to the great mercy of God. And when you understand that I needed just as much mercy as you need, not one of us, we said this on Good Friday, not one of us was good enough that Jesus had to die a lesser death for us than he did for someone else. It's, and it, we, I know I've made this point, but, but hear it again. It's not as if Jesus could have died an easy death for me and a difficult death for you. That same death, he had to die for us all. And when I understand that, it's really easy. It's really easy for me to love that person who's got no redeemable qualities because I realize in my own self, I had no redeemable qualities. I was just as much, I'm just as much needing him as you need him. I needed his mercy just as much as you did. And when we understand that, we have a greater capacity for love. Because now, we're not comparing ourselves with ourselves. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I, we're, all we're saying is, thank God he saved us all. We were all without hope. None of us were righteous. No, not one. And we all kind of know that. Everybody in the room believes that when it comes to salvation. But do you believe that when it comes to everything else? Now, thank God. So Kelly took piano lessons at some point. Those piano lessons probably qualify her to play piano better than some of you. Right? Because you say, well, 
I didn't take piano lessons. I mean, we were just, we, they just had this great celebration at Azusa, commemorating the great Azusa Street uh, outpouring that, that God uh, just blessed this congregation in Azusa with, with a powerful move of the Holy Spirit that, that spread into all of the world from there in Azusa, California, Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. But the original Azusa Street, there was a woman who, they didn't have a piano player, and they said, we need a piano player. And this woman who never played piano, not once in her life, got up, and the Lord said, this, is, this one needs to play the piano. She never played piano in her life. All of a sudden, she played the whole service for hours under the power of God, under the presence of God. Now, when Kelly gets up and plays the piano, her piano lessons are in use, but she has to understand every time she gets up to the piano that the Lord wants to use me, and though I brought piano lessons to the table, it's really by His grace that I'm going to lead people in worship. Because I've been in services where there are good singers and good instruments, and there was nothing else going on. You might as well have been at karaoke. Maybe you've been in that too, and we shouldn't judge that. You can worship, you can worship in karaoke. You know, sometimes we need to get over the band and, and just put our eyes on Jesus, but you know what I'm talking about. And so, when she gets up and plays piano, sure, she brought something to the table, but the real power, the real strength, the real ability to not just play, but play is worship in a way that's pleasing to God, because that's the point. If we were to all compare our voices to the angels, none of us would pass the test. So what's God listening for? Is he listening for perfect pitch, or is he listening for perfect worship? And we are incapable of perfectly worshiping him without him. That's the good news. So this guy trusts in himself, whereas the tax collector, here's what he says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. So he, nowhere in his prayer does he say, I mean, I'm kind of a sinner. I've done some good things. I've, I don't steal all the money. I could have done things. Nowhere does he try to justify his own actions. Nowhere did Zacchaeus try to justify his own actions. Nowhere did the adulterous woman who was caught in adultery try to justify her own actions. Our actions do not need to be justified. We need to be justified. When you understand the greatness of the blood of Jesus, you can be real open in your prayer life. I've learned, and you do you, do you but I've learned when I pray and I've got something to deal with with God, I've got something that I, that's in my life that needs to come out, I just call it what it is. I've stopped calling my own sin, I've st- and I don't claim it as my sin anymore. Thank God it's taken away from me as far as the east is from the west. But when I'm addressing things in my life, I don't call it mistakes anymore. I don't say, Lord, thank you for forgiving my mistakes. I call it what it is. I name it by name because I know that his blood is able to remove it from me. And so for me to confess my sin means me to agree with God about it, and he calls it what it is, so I'm going to step on his side and call it what it is and say, thank God I am forgiven, it's removed from me, and thank God you're delivering me from the need to ever do that again. And I'm not ashamed to call it what it is because it's not mine anymore. It's under the blood of Jesus. We need to get bold about that. We need to stop trying to cover up our own actions. Stop trying to cover up sin and let, just understand that you are cleansed. For me to try to justify my own actions is me trying to justify myself. And I can't justify myself. 
I, that's being self-righteous, and I can't be self-righteous. I have to be made righteous by Jesus. His blood makes me righteous, not my own action. So what I've learned, and, and, and you do this how you want to do it, but what I've learned is when I come to the Lord, I'm an open book, and I'm, I, I've just learned to be real honest. God, here, I'm going to be real honest. I'm going to talk in faith. I'm going I'm to say what you say about me, but I'm going to be real honest with the things I'm dealing with, and I'm going to call them what, I, what you call them because I'm not going to give them a place to hide anymore. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to identify with Christ, understand that your blood makes me clean, your death made me righteous, your resurrection gave me new life, and so here I stand separated from that sin because you've removed it from me as far as the east is from the west. So I have the guts to call it what it is. Nowhere does this man say, but tax collecting is not that bad. But stealing is not that bad. No, he hangs it all on God. He says, have mercy on me. Be propitious. Make propitiation for me. Pay my debt. And no matter whether you thought he had the right to pray it, God liked it. God honored it. It had faith that pleased him. And that man walked away from that prayer declared righteous. I want you to turn to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his own people, his own friends, his own rabbinical school buddies. See, Paul was an ardent Pharisee. He had been trained by the best teachers in all of Judaism. He says, my prayers for my, my old friends my prayers for my brethren, my prayers for my people, for their salvation. And specifically, he's talking about those who knew a lot, those who had been living pretty good lives compared to everybody else, but he says, my prayers for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, I've heard this verse applied to some young buck that goes out and wants to change the world, but he hasn't sat down under some good teaching long enough. And I suppose you could use it that way, but that might be out of context. What's the knowledge they need? What's the knowledge they need? Do they, do they need more Bible school training? Because they got lots of that. Here's the knowledge that they need. He says this, their zeal is without knowledge for not knowing about what? God's righteousness. That's the knowledge that they're lacking. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So in other words, he's saying, if you want to live by the law, you'll live and die by it. You want to live by the law, you'll live by your own strength and your own righteousness. And what he says later is that righteousness will fall short. 
the law you live by will eventually condemn you. But he says this, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So the righteousness based on faith says, I receive your righteousness rather than my own. He says, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Another, way of, another translation says, will not be put to shame. I, I want you to see this. He says, don't say in your heart, and he quotes from the Old Testament, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Don't say in your heart who will ascend, descend into the abyss. And he says, if we were to say who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. There are two issues that were a stumbling block for the Jews. The incarnation and the resurrection. The first thing they struggled with is that God would come down to earth. But Jesus did. The other thing they struggled with is that a man could come back from the dead. And Jesus did. He says, by your efforts. Now, this, this scripture reminds me of Greek mythology. Where you'd have a hero go up to Mount Olympus and bring something down. Or go down to Hades and bring something back. But guys, we can't do that. That is a bridge too far. That is a canyon too wide. He's saying, here's what you're doing. You're trying to get yourself, you're trying to save your own life. Here's what you're doing. It's like a man trying to go up to heaven and bring God down. Or like a man trying to go down to, to the grave and bring, bring Jesus back, bring God up from the grave, raise him from the dead. He says, if we say, who will ascend into heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss is to raise him from the dead. We can't do that. That is a canyon too big for us. This is what we're trying to do. Now listen, I know most of you in the room today have received Jesus as your Lord. You've given your life, so you say, this is old news for me. I've already done this. I know. And yet, the more competent we get, the more competent we get in whatever we're doing for the Lord, the easier it is to begin to rely on our competence rather than relying on the grace of God and His strength, His power to get it done. Rather than relying on the anointing that breaks burdens and destroys yokes, that anoints us to preach the gospel to the poor, and anoints us to speak release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, that anoints us to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that is the Spirit of God. You can't disconnect the anointing with the Holy Spirit. They are one. Everything we do is by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, without the Father, I don't do anything. And he also said, when the disciples said, you're going away, he said, I'm going away, but I will leave you another helper. If you dig into the language there, he's saying, one just like me. Everything you've seen me do has been by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you. So our own competence can be our own worst enemy. That's why it was so hard. That's why Paul, in this, in this chapter in Romans 10, he's not praying for the drunk on the street, even though he'd preach to the drunk on the street. He's praying for the Bible school graduates. He's pray, I mean, 
Torah school graduates, whatever. He's praying for his old rabbinical buddies. He's praying for the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin. He's praying for the same people that stoned Stephen. He's praying for the people that know more about God than anyone else because their knowledge has become their own trap, seeking to establish their own righteousness. They've neglected the righteousness of God and refused to submit to it. You guys remember, maybe if you don't, maybe if you weren't around when this happened, you at least remember the stories of Evil Knievel trying to jump Snake River Canyon. Oh man, wouldn't that have been cool if he had made it? But he didn't. It seems like that's how most of those stories end. <laughs> With some broken bones, some punctured lungs. Our best hope is that they live through it. Now, I got to admit, as a kid, I looked at the North Saskatchewan River. We'd go over it. <laughs> North Saskatchewan River would be pretty easy to jump compared to Snake River Canyon. But uh, I, remember, I remember even back in the day, and uh, some of you might remember this, I remember taking the ferry over the river back then. I mean, that was kind of a cool experience. You had to have some faith in the ferry. We had a big 40 Econoline van, and I remember thinking, uh, We've driven on ice, we've driven on shaky roads, but this is probably the shakiest thing we've driven on. It took us across. But I remember as a kid thinking, what if we could jump it? Now, if you're going to jump the river, Ford Econoline's probably not the van you pick. (laughs) It's not the vehicle you go for. There's a reason nobody tried to jump Snake River Canyon in a school bus. There's just logic, right? But I mean, that was, as a kid, I was like, I was always thinking, what could we jump? What could, could we make it? If we tried, could we make it? But you can't. And uh, most people know that. And that's why there are bridges. We know there's bridges. That's why there was a ferry back then. The thing is, the righteousness of God, which is based on faith, is a bridge. It's a bridge from us to God. It's a bridge in which God came down to earth and Jesus was raised from the dead. That's your bridge to God. The problem is, is the more souped up our engines get, the more tricked out our vehicles get, the more we try to jump the canyon when there's a bridge right there. Because think how amazing it would be if we jumped the canyon. Think of all the people that would cheer for us if we jumped the canyon. Think of all the stories we get to tell if we jump the canyon, but nobody jumps the canyon. There's a bridge. Stop trying to jump the canyon. Jumping the canyon ends badly. Now, if you try to jump the canyon, imagine, imagine Snake River Canyon's small potatoes for you. You've got a souped-up bike, and your bike is so souped up, so, so overpowered that you say, forget Snake River. I'm going for the Grand Canyon. Does anybody here think that's something that's going to happen in our lifetime? Maybe. But odds aren't good. <laughs> Grand Canyon's pretty big. Now, let me ask you a question. If two people try to jump the canyon, one has a nasty old dirt bike, 150 cc's. That guy's going to die, right? We all know that he's going to die, yeah? (laughs) Unless the Colorado River saves his life, he's going to die. Okay, but imagine somebody has the most souped up of souped up of bikes, a, a, a bike we haven't even seen yet, super souped up. Now, that guy probably is also going to die. Whether or not you make it 10 meters or 50 meters, the result is the same. 
So the guy with the souped-up bike and the guy with the junkie bike are both ending up in the bottom of the canyon. And neither one of them gets to die an easier death at the bottom because they made it farther. Nobody gets points for making it farther if you don't make the whole canyon. You can't make it to bring God down from heaven. You couldn't make it to hell to bring him up. You can't do that. And so when we understand that the canyon is too wide for all of us, we begin to cut our engine off and look for the bridge. And there is a bridge. And it is called the righteousness of God, which is based on faith. Now listen. Faith always has action attached to it. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. Because the Bible says faith without works is dead. So when you receive Jesus... Your, your action was simple. You confess with your mouth. <laughs> that was simple, right? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You gave him your life. If you read Hebrews 11, we often call that the hall of faith. It, it talks about all these great deeds that people did by faith. But notice the pattern. By faith they did. Their faith was attached to their obedience, but their obedience would have been nothing without the power of God. Can I ask you a question? What's the greater miracle? That the Israelites walked across the Red Sea or that God split the Red Sea? You know what I'm saying? Was the greater miracle that they could put one foot in front of the other and walk as bipeds do? Or was the greater miracle that God split the Red Sea so that they could walk through it? Our part is the walking and the believing. So we believe by faith that God will do the impossible and split the sea. Now, God will do the impossible and split the sea, but I still got to walk. That's my part, obedience. If you're disobedient, the Egyptians are right behind you. So I got to be obedient. My obedience is tied to my faith, okay? So I've got faith, but nowhere in the middle of this, do you think there were Israelites holding the edges of the water? Do you think they walked along like this, trying to make sure the water stayed up? Would that have done any good? No, no. no. nobody can hold the water back. So the best thing you can do is just have faith in God and just walk. It's crazy that we're doing this. Nowhere on the other side, and I've said this before, we, I think we said this last week, but nowhere, nobody in the whole Israelite camp comes up with this idea when the, when the Red Sea is in front of them and the, and the Egyptian army is behind them. Nobody says, I got an idea, guys. Let's just start walking into the sea and see what happens. That guy gets fired from his job real quick. No, Norm, we can't, cross, we can't walk into the water. Don't be an idiot, Norm. But when they saw, they heard, when Moses heard God say, stick your staff out, watch what I do. And when the Israelites heard the voice of Moses saying, cross the Red Sea, they walked. So here's your part. Whether God calls you to preach, whether God calls you to sing, whether God calls you to serve, to encourage, whether God calls you to put your hands on someone and believe they're going to be healed, there is always obedience. But that obedience is grounded in faith and we should never let our own competence get in the way of our faith. Here's the great, I'll just be honest with you. The greatest difficulty for me, the more I preach, is that I know how to preach. You may say, that's not a difficulty, but I know how to preach, and I know how to preach in a way, because I've been doing it long enough, that I can preach in a way 
where your voice goes up at the right time and your voice goes low at the right time, where people would say the right thing. But I've learned that when you do that, it falls flat. And I walk away knowing I haven't done the will of the Lord. So I gave up on that a long time ago. Now we stand up and I forget, forget all that I've, forget the practice, forget any skills I think I've got, and just trust God that He can speak through His people and He can speak to His people. You can read a thousand books on how to pray for the sick. Learn a thousand techniques on how to lay your hands on them. But the end of the story is this. It's God that heals the sick. Your job is to lay your hands on them. Your job is to believe. But it's the power of God that gets it done. You may have vacuumed the floors a thousand times, but if you can vacuum the floor and say, God is with me as I do this. I know some people think that's silly, but I don't think it's silly at all. That I am doing this for Him and I am doing this through Him. There's not a thing in your life that you need to do out of your own strength. We rely on the strength of God. There's two bridges. One is the bridge you built and one is the bridge He built and you can't use both of them. If you're going to cross the canyon, you have to use His. He says here, by trying to establish their own, they neglect God's. We can't play it both ways. You can't do it both ways. You can't say, I want some glory and he'll have some glory. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, I, I, let, let me take some of the credit and you'll get some of the credit. I'll do me, you do you, and we'll both get credit. It doesn't work. If I'm walking into this situation, I'm saying he's going to get it all the credit. How does that prayer, I'm going to go back to the original point as we close. How does that prayer look in the life of a believer. I think there are elements that we see in the Pharisees' prayer that we need to stay away from. Trusting in ourselves rather than in God. Looking at others as the, as the basis for our justification. Saying, well, at least I'm doing better than them. God doesn't grade on a curve. And like I said, the guy that went 10 meters over the Grand Canyon and the guy that went 50 meters, they all ended up in the same spot. So it doesn't matter how good Denny's doing or how good uh, Kim is doing. It doesn't matter how good the other people around you are doing because that's not the point. That'll lead to you scorning and scoffing at others and, and, and there's no grace in that. So what do we do? Humility goes to God and says this, I hang everything on you. The Bible says, and we talked about this about a month ago, in, in the book of James chapter four, it says, that God gives grace, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we talked about what did grace look like to that humble person, how does it look in your life, the grace of God working in your life? The easiest way for me to understand it is that scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Imagine God opposing you. Could anybody in the room do anything if God was opposing you? So if the opposite of God opposing you is God giving grace to you, flip it around. Imagine how hard it would be if God was opposing what you were doing. Now flip that around. That's God supplying grace to get it done. And that comes with humility. 
the humility that God's looking for. The humility says you can do all things through. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without him, I'm nothing. But thank God I'm not without him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't lean on the flesh. I don't walk by the flesh. I walk by faith and not by sight. I know that his strength is greater than my strength. I know his grace is greater than my weaknesses. In fact, I'll even look at my weaknesses and say, thank God that's an area he's strong in. Where I'm weak, he is strong. So now the weak will say, I am strong. When I, when, I, when I learn to live like that, when I learn to pray like that, you hang everything on him and nothing on my own competence. And watch what God does. And God will take a competent, well-rehearsed piano player and turn them in to somebody that's used by God to soften hearts, to, to welcome people into the presence of God, to lead people into worship of a holy God. And I don't care if you're Liberace. I don't care if you're Mozart or Beethoven himself. You can't do that by just learning the right notes. It comes from the presence and the power and the spirit and the grace of God. And so when I understand that, I hang it all on him. My, my motorbike might have gotten souped up. I don't drive that 150cc dirt bike anymore. Now I got a souped up bike. Now I can make it over the cliff. I think I still can't make it over the cliff. I used to be able to go 10 meters. Now I can go 50. Now I can go 75. I'm still going to die at the bottom of the canyon. Take the bridge, man. Just take the bridge. The bridge is trustworthy. Stop trying to jump the gully. Eric, you ever tried to jump the gully with the, with the van? Not with the van. <laughs> Stop trying to jump the gully and take the bridge. I know it's not as glamorous, but it is the power of God working in our lives. That's why he says... But at the end of the day, we're to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let him who speaks, speak as the one speaking what God says. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies, so that in all things, God may be glorified. God's going to get glory. He'll get glory right here in this church. He'll get glory in our city. He'll get glory in your life. And the reason he's going to get glory is because it's going to be obvious to everyone that it was him. Because they, as cool as they were, as professional as they were, as pretty as they were, could never have done what God has done. Look back and say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's stand up today.